Welcome to the Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. I'm Caleb Silver, the editor-in-chief of Investopedia and your host on our journey into what it means to be a so-called green investor and what is happening across the sustainable investing landscape. On this week's episode, we go inside the world of activist investing as Mark Von Ball, the founder of Follow This, joins the show to talk about how his organization is challenging big oil companies to change their ways from the inside out as shareholders. It's a fascinating model and it's starting to gain some traction. So stay tuned for that. But first, let's set some ground rules for this podcast. As always, it is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in the securities mentioned on this podcast. Some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast, but all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. Let's get into some headlines, shall we? Following the money, sustainable investing mutual funds and exchange-traded funds, we call those ETFs, continued to attract record flows from investors last year. As of the end of 2021, assets grew 52% from the year before to $362 billion, according to S&P Global. The money being invested globally in the energy transition to renewable and sustainable sources totaled $755 billion in 2021. That's a new record according to Energy Transition Investment Trends, a report by Bloomberg NEF. Investments rose in every sector covered in the report, including renewable energy, energy storage, electrified transport, electrified heat, nuclear, hydrogen, and sustainable materials. On the cost side of the ledger, consulting company McKinsey just put out a report with its latest analysis of the cost of achieving net zero emissions by the year 2050. It adds up to a staggering $9.2 trillion a year every year between now and 2050. That comes to a whopping total of $275 trillion worth of investments in energy assets and land use systems ranging from agriculture to forestry. Global GDP, by the way, is $81 trillion, so we're talking about three times that. To be sure, the $9.2 trillion figure includes total annual investments, which lump current and new spending together. McKinsey says global spending is currently around $3.7 trillion on what it calls high-emission assets. That means fossil fuels, refining and power generation, cement and steel production, and gas-powered vehicles. McKinsey estimates that roughly one of these trillions could be shifted to low-emission assets like renewable power generation, building electrification, and electric vehicles. That's on top of the $2 trillion that's already being spent on clean, lean technologies and supporting infrastructure. So that means we're talking about $3.5 trillion in new spending every year to get to that 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold set out in the Paris Agreement. With oil prices topping seven-year highs, the temptation for global oil companies to spend even more on exploration and production is strong. But that might be a $500 billion-plus mistake. At least that's the theory being proposed by Carbon Tracker, a London-based think tank. In a new report, Carbon Tracker says oil majors may be left with upwards of $530 billion in stranded assets if governments around the world adhere to climate change initiatives outlined in the Paris Agreements. That could lead to a steep drop in oil prices into the $40 to $50 a barrel range, which would trigger major losses. If oil companies devote those same resources into their own renewable projects, their risk could be far less and their opportunities for sustainable growth increase, according to the report, which we will link to in the show notes. 
And this from our pal David Calloway at Calloway Climate Insights. David notes that it's very rare that a nomination to the Federal Reserve Board receives as much attention as Sarah Bloom Raskin is getting in Washington, D.C. this week. Two dozen state treasurers have teamed up with the oil and gas industry to try to thwart President Joe Biden's nomination of Raskin to vice chair of supervision at the Fed, which oversees investment banks. Her opponents claim her views that the fossil fuel industry needs to be unwound are a massive economic threat to the country. Raskin's nomination hearing is set for Thursday on Capitol Hill. Standing up to the world's biggest corporations is not for the timid, and it's hard to get them to pay attention, even if you are fearless. But if you really want to affect change among global multinational corporations, going at it from the inside can sometimes prove to be very effective. That's the strategy that Follow This has been using, and it's showing signs of working. The nonprofit organization started in the Netherlands with a campaign aimed at Royal Dutch Shell has been filing shareholder resolutions at big oil companies around the world because it owns shares in those companies. Furthermore, it allows people like you and me to buy shares in big energy companies and follow this will use those shares as part of its ammunition to pressure those companies to live up to their environmental promises. Mark Van Ball is the founder and CEO of Follow This, and he is our guest on The Green Investor this week. So good to be with you, Mark. Good to see you. Nice to meet you. Well, I gave the broad sketch of what you do, but it's much more complicated than that. If you can, briefly, tell us about the organization and the purpose and the process. Yeah, maybe I should start in 2015 when Follow This was founded. Follow This is founded on a few convictions. One of them is that we need big oil to speed up the energy transition, to have any chance to end the climate crisis. Without big oil, there's no chance we're going to meet the Paris Climate Accord. Second, I'm convinced that they want change on their own accord. They've shown in the past that they really want to continue business as usual. So they need to be pushed from the outside. And the only people they really have to listen to are their shareholders. And at the end of the day, that's you and me via savings or pensions. So the idea was back in 2015, we need to support big oil to make this enormous, brave and bold decisions to stop investing in oil and gas. You're basically asking them to change their business practices, turn them upside down. This is what they've been doing for decades and decades. And you're calling not only for them to pay attention and respect the agreements in the Paris Accord, but to go even further. So let's talk about some of the things you're pushing for at Follow This from the big oil companies like Royal Dutch Shell, like Exxon, et cetera. You have some pretty heavy demands. Uh, I don't think it's very heavy. It's We consider, and more and more investors consider it just a fair ask. And the fair ask is join the goal of the Paris Climate Agreement. Set targets to reduce emissions that are aligned with the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement. We all know that's 1.5 degrees preferably well below two degrees in the worst case. And that can only be achieved if global emissions will be halved in the next decade and will be zero in 2050. And everybody has to do their own share. And so these companies who have the global power also need to do their own share. That means halving emissions in the next decade. Sounds like very heavy. It's a fast transition. I fully agree. But let's face the fact, if Big Oil had wanted slow transition, they should have started in the 90s or even earlier in the, in the 80s or 70s when they knew about climate change. They deliberately choose to postpone action, first by climate denial and now by saying, yeah, we can't go this fast. This is not realistic. But the best climate agreement is doable. The technologies are there. Society is ready. Politicians are ready. Only the boards of big oil 
are not ready. And I can fully understand that. So tell us about the process. You're a nonprofit, but you offer the ability to buy shares or transfer shares of these oil companies from individual investors like me, and then you put them to work. Tell us how that works. The only way to get something like this off the ground, I concluded uh, in the end of 2014, when I have approached pension funds and big investors with the message, okay, guys, I hear you talking about stopping climate change all the time. You're invested in big oil. Why don't we together support them and if needed, force them to change course? Big investors thought this was too early. And they all told me, basically, we do engagement. We talk with them behind the scenes. And we don't want to do this in the public scene. So I concluded the only way to get this off the ground is by a grassroots organization. So in the beginning of 2015, we built a website where you could buy one share in Shell. One symbolic green share in Shell was 30 euros at that time. You could send an email to the CEO of Shell saying, Dear Ben, I'm your new shareholder. You have the power to stop climate change. You have my support to do so. What are you waiting for? And with that, a few hundred people bought that ID and actually bought that green share. So in May, I could go to the shareholder meeting of Shell, stating on behalf of a few hundred shareholders, of course, I didn't tell that they only had one share a person, dear Ben, we're here to support you. We know it's very difficult. We know it's very difficult to completely change your business, but you have our support. What are you waiting for? That was 2015. And the answer was quite simple. Thank you for being on the shareholder meeting. We're not ready. See you next year. And Please come back every year, like all the NGOs, and we will tell you when the time is right. That was 2015. But because we got media attention, because I was standing there on my own on on behalf of a few hundred people, I managed to get five people, which I always say have a few millions and a few ideals. They bought, each of them, 1 million euros in shares in Shell. And then you pass the threshold in the UK, and when you have 5 million and 100 shareholders, you can file a shareholder resolution. And that's what we did in the end of 2015. On the shareholder meeting in 2016, a year later, it was actually on the ballot, on the agenda of the shareholder meeting. And that was the moment that we, it got serious because then you have the attention of the board because they have to take a decision. They have to advise their shareholders how to vote. And their shareholders, the big institutional investors, the big pension fund, they have to decide how they're going to vote. So that was the moment it started. And in the first year, we only got 2.7% of the votes, which sounds very low. But if you compare it to all other resolutions where 99.9 votes with management, North Korean, I always call it, if 2.7% disagrees with management, that's already a signal. A year later, it was 6%. And on 6%, Shell already responded with a big step for no major, taking responsibility for product emissions, the so-called scope tree which I talk about all the time. I want to get into that for sure. But every year you're getting more and more votes, right? You're getting more and more attention because this is growing. What have you noticed about investor behavior and the way investors today are thinking about this versus five, 10 years ago? Yeah, we got more and more support every year, despite all the new promises Big Oil makes. Shell comes out with a new target every year, preferably about 2050. Then we will be net zero, whatever they say, but it's in the far future. So despite all these new promises, more and more investors realize that they don't have to vote in favor of what's in the best interest of the company necessarily, but what's in the best interest of their entire portfolio. And that's the shift I've seen in the last seven years. In the beginning, investors said, we can't vote for your resolution because you put constraints on these companies and our fiduciary duty 
is to give every company maximum flexibility to maximize profit. And you ask for constraints. Five years later, investors one by one say, this might not be in the best interest of the company in the short term, but it is in the best interest of our entire portfolio to stop climate change. And therefore, we're going to vote for your resolutions because Big Oil has the lead role to play. So that's the shift from focus on what's best for the company to focus on what's best for the entire portfolio, which you can translate into what's best for the world economy. And everybody who knows a bit about climate change knows that it's not only will be devastating for the well-being of people, but also will be devastating for the world economy. Right. As we've been talking about on this podcast, there is so much risk underlying the global energy market that it's not obviously just the wells in the ground and the infrastructure out in the Gulf of Mexico and up in the Arctic. It is the entire energy infrastructure that goes all the way to the retail level. Let's talk a little bit about that because you mentioned that Shell says it adopts new targets. Exxon, which you're involved with as well, adopts new targets every year. But the targets that they're basically adopting is capping their emissions from their production. You are talking about a broad scale reduction all the way down down the funnel to the end consumer. And I've heard you talk about this like the tobacco companies. They're not worried about the effect on uh, necessarily on the consumer. They're talking about the cutting the emissions on the production of tobacco. That's just a scratching the surface. Tell us more about that. Yeah, that's the debate we have with every oil major when we start. Their initial response to our resolutions, which ask for short, medium, and long-term targets in line with the Paris Climate Agreement, covering all emissions. In Yargon, that's scope one, two, that's the company's operational emissions and scope three, the product emissions, which in a, for an all major is 80 to 90%. So what happens when we, the consumers, use their products? And in the beginning, they were dead against setting targets for scope three. The response was, that's not our responsibility. We just supply what the market asks us. We're not responsible for what our customers do with our products. Some investors even said to me, Mark, you're asking something unreasonable. Shell doesn't know what their customers do with their products. That's the moment I lost my patience, as you can imagine. Normally, I'm quite decent, but then I said, I think they burn it. What do you think? That was the first debate. And after a small group of shareholders said, by voting for our resolution, yes, you need to take responsibility for Scope 3. You need to offer different products which drive down emissions. Then they started setting Scope 3 targets for 2050. Very easy, of course, but it's also crossing the Rubicon it's accepting responsibility for scope three. So that's, I think, what we achieved together with the investors who voted for our resolutions in the first couple of years. So Shell, two years later, BP and Equinor, and last year, Chevron and Philip 66 in the US, they all said the first time our resolution was filed, scope three, unreasonable, not our problem. Shell just voted for it in the US, even majorities. So that's how you see how the landscape has changed fast. In Shell, the first time we got 2.7%. Chevron, the first time we got 61%. This is the big issue, right, Mark? Can big oil companies come even reasonably close to the Paris Accord demands or scope three without completely imploding from a financial perspective? Or is the risk that if they don't do that, they're going to implode from a financial perspective? But either way, there's a lot of risk out there in the market underlying which way this goes. So if they don't change, we have a lot of risk in the global economy, the climate crisis, the climate economy. If they do change, it will hurt their bottom line. It'll hurt their profit margins. It'll hurt the entire ecosystem that, that they're built on. So how do they even come reasonably close to doing this without doing too much damage either way? 
Yeah, that's right. They have to accept the Paris Climate Agreement. They have to accept that the world, 200 countries in the world, have agreed to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees, which means that two-thirds of the proven reserves have to stay in the ground. That's a quite a simple mathematical calculation. 400 gigatons to go, 1,200 on the balance sheet. So two-thirds has to stay in the ground. And then they have to have a completely different mindset and realize that there is a lot of money in renewables. And that's the difficult thing with the transition is, is I'm an engineer, but I think it's not a technology. There are enough smart engineers who can solve the technology. The technology is there. The solar panels are there. The wind turbines are there. The electric cars are there now. Not thanks to the incumbents, but thanks to a newcomer, Tesla. Everybody's building them now. So the technology is there. Only nobody knows which will be the new business models. And that's what companies have to try. So they're used to taking big risks. And now they should take big risks in trying new business models. And I always make the analogy with Kodak. Kodak had invented digital photography. So the technology was not a problem. They only did not dare to try new business models. They wanted to stick to their old business models. They told the people who want to work on digital saying, okay, you can only start it when you show the same margins as we make with photo rolls and photo paper, which was around 80%, I think, or it was quite high. So if you don't dare to go for new business models, you will never get into a transition. So that's the big issue here. Right. Well, you mentioned the auto industry and it took a newcomer, it took Tesla to upend the industry, but Ford, GM, Volkswagen, Fiat, they're all getting in line. And guess what? They've been some of the best performing stocks over the last year because investors see this. They're transitioning their businesses. They're taking the pain now, but they know and consumers want electric vehicles going forward. So they're moving, but it took it did take an upstart to do it. Let's talk a little bit about the SATI framework you developed because it's not just about meeting those emission targets or the Paris Accord. You have a five-step approach. Tell us briefly about what that is because I think it's pretty clarifying in terms of what you're asking for from, from big oil. Yeah, the SATI framework came about when a friend of me told me, who is a consultant, Mark, you need an acronym. That's what every consultant does. So I, I wrote down, what do these oil majors need to do? And I wrote down, first, they need to take responsibility for scope three. Then they need to, to set an ambition for scope three. Then they need to set a target, which is fully in line with the Paris Climate Agreement. If they set their targets, they need to do investments to reach their targets. And only if they've done that, then we reach the last letter, the E, their emissions will go down. So that's the five steps they have to take. So with these old majors, when we file the first resolution, we are at the S. So we put scope three on the ballot. If enough investors support it, the company set an ambition for scope three, which is not Paris aligned yet, but at least they acknowledge responsibility for scope three. So that's where we are with uh, the old majors where we're active now. They have all set an ambition for scope three. 2050, far future, not Paris consistent yet for the next 10 years. So that's the next step. So they have to go to, from the S and the E to the T of targets. But I'm convinced that only when you have very strong targets, then you will shift your investments. 
So, folks, we will link to the SAT-T framework. We'll also link to the Scope 3 agreement, so you can check that out as well as follow this is, uh, annual letter that you put out in December. Very clarifying in terms of what you're trying to do. But now let's talk about this from my perspective or an individual per- investor's perspective. If I want to get involved with this, if I want to uh, buy a share, become involved with your movement, I'm doing it because I want to affect change. I'm not doing this to make money, potentially, even though the stock may go up over time. But tell us how that works from an investor point of view. Yeah, we have basically two kind of investors. Of course, the institutional investors who already have packages of shares in big oil. So we try to convince them that we just have a fair ask on the agenda. But we also like to show the world that a lot of retail investors also understand our cause and also understand that we need big oil to drive the energy transition. So we encourage individuals to buy just one symbolic share in an oil major of choice, Shell for 30 euros, BP just 9 euros, and really feel that they are a green shareholder in big oil. So we send them updates. We always address them like, you're a green shareholder in big oil. And on behalf of you, we go to these shareholder meetings and uh, we ask on behalf of your green share and we vote on behalf of you for change. And I notice that people like that because A lot of people like myself in 2014, I felt pretty powerless uh, looking at climate change. It's a global problem. Of course, I have solar panels on my roof here. I take the train. I don't eat meat. So I do what I can do as as an individual. But I do not have any illusion that that will make the difference in this huge global problem. So I thought, okay, I have to ask the right people, the people who can make a difference. And these are the CEOs of these old majors. And by being a shareholder, you actually own the company and you can influence them. So it's really empowering for people now, 8,000 people, predominantly in the Netherlands, who have this green share in the shell. Sometimes they join us to, uh, on the shareholder meeting. We always go there with 100 people. But yeah, that's the whole idea, that people feel empowered by being an owner of an oil major. And the oil majors are really the heart of the problem. Fossil fuel industry is responsible for more than 50% of all emissions. And they, if they don't change, no chance we can ever meet the Paris Climate Agreement. Right. Real quick on your background here, you came at this from a completely different place. From what I read, you were selling refrigerating units to to big shipping containers, which also use a lot of energy, require a lot of energy. You were looking at the global supply chain firsthand and selling into it, and you just hit a breaking point. What happened? Yeah, what happened that, like many people, when I passed 30, I had a very nice career flying all over Europe selling these refrigeration machines. But then I thought, okay, I want to do something with more purpose in the rest of my life. So I decided to become a journalist. And after seeing an inconvenient truth of Al Gore, that was really for me the epiphany that I thought, okay, I'm, I'm an engineer for 12 years now. I'm a mechanical engineer. I, I design and sell machines that put CO2 in the air. I'd never bothered about it. But now I know the problem. Now I have to do something about it. So I decided to become an energy and climate journalist. Uh, did that for a couple of years, like eight years. And then after eight years, when I concluded that I would never be a very influential journalist, that Big O would never listen to me. I thought I have to find another way to to influence them. And then I became an activist shareholder. Going at it from the inside. So fascinating. What are your big goals for 2022 on the way out here? 2022, yeah, we have to show the boards of the Big O companies where we're active, Shell, BP, Chevron, Exxon. We have to show them that their shareholders are losing their patience. So we put the same resolutions on the ballot again. So investors will vote for it in May 
And yeah, we need to grow to show that investors are losing their patience and that they really have to change and that they really have to set Paris consistent targets, which means their emissions have to go down. All big oil companies who have made some promises all want to grow their emissions in the next decades. So basically their story is we have this nice ambition, net zero in 2050. So now leave us alone and let us increase our emissions in the next decade to build market share, to build cash flow, to even do this. So the shareholders are our last hope in the fight against climate change. Power to the people, power to the shareholders. Fascinating model and a fascinating organization you've put together. Mark Von Ball, the founder and CEO of Follow This. Folks, followthis.org. Check out what they're doing. And if you want to get involved, plenty of information on the site. But I do highly recommend you read Mark's letter at the end of December, at the end of 2021. A lot of learning there. Thanks so much for joining The Green Investor and best wishes on your endeavors. My pleasure, Caleb. It's time for Green Facts, and we're going to school on this one. U.S. colleges and universities are getting into the sustainable debt game. U.S. colleges floated nearly four times as much debt branded with green, sustainability, or social labels in 2021 than they did in 2020 to take advantage of the growing appetite for this asset theme. According to Bloomberg, U.S. colleges are funding projects that they say will reduce their carbon footprint, such as building new facilities that adhere to greener standards, converting their fleets to electric, and changing their power generation plants. Oberlin College in Ohio is doing just that, raising money through green bonds to rebuild its energy infrastructure, while Utah State College is using the proceeds from its debt raise to expand research space for environmental projects and to test electric car charging stations on campus. In 2021, municipal borrowers sold more than $50 billion of green, social, or sustainability labeled debt, which was far and away a record. And while colleges and universities issued just $1.7 billion worth of sustainable or green energy debt, those numbers keep growing every year. It's time to unpack the acronym, and they are never-ending in this alphabet soup of green investing. This week's acronym is TNFD, and that stands for the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosure. The task force's stated mission, which you can find on its website, is, quote, to develop and deliver a risk management and disclosure framework for organizations to report and act on evolving nature-related risks, which aims to support a shift in global financial flows away from nature-negative outcomes and toward nature-positive outcomes. Well, who's in this task force? Top executives from the biggest banks, money managers, and insurance companies in the world, including Bank of America, BlackRock, Swiss Re, AXA, HSBC, Anglo-American, which is a mining giant, KPMG, the consultant, and dozens of others. On June 5th, finance ministers from the Group of Seven, G7, which represent the largest economies in the world, endorsed the TNFD. The approach of this task force is modeled on a more familiar reporting framework from the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, TCFD, which focuses on climate-related risk. It's time for our trip into environmental history on the way out today, and this week we celebrate the birthday of the U.S. Forest Service. It was founded on February 1st, 1905 by U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt and his first forest chief, Giffard Pinchot. The service was created as the final reorganization of forestry oversight and protection following a series of efforts that began in 1876. Pinchot, who was trained in scientific forestry management in Europe and at Yale University, is credited with bringing concepts of sustainability into professional forestry. Happy birthday, Forest Service! That'll do it for this edition of The Green Investor, powered by Investopedia. Check out The Green Investor on Investopedia for a transcript of this show and our other episodes, and we'll include links to follow this and all the reports we cited on the program in that transcript. Thanks for the listen, and if you like what you hear, give us a review and some stars wherever you're tuning in. 
Keep it green, and we'll talk to you again real soon.